0: Good afternoon. afternoon. So good to see many of you today. If you have your Bibles, please start getting ready to open it up to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. Uh, It's without much debate. Christmas is the most celebrated holiday of the year all around the world. But what is supposed to be a season... Dedicated to the celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ The Son of God becoming fully flesh and blood A.K.A. Jesus' birthday As you know, has become much of a uh, secularized and commercialized holiday Often minimizing or even outright rejecting the Christ of Christmas And as I often say every Christmas Christmas without Christ is no mass, no celebration A birthday party without the birthday boy is not a party just search some of the top Christmas songs And many of these songs have nothing to do with Jesus whatsoever So here's the top ten that I came up You know, a simple Google search All I want for Christmas is you Have yourself a merry little Christmas Last Christmas I gave you my heart <laughs> Santa Claus is coming to town Santa Baby <laughs> Winter Wonderland Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer I'll be home for Christmas, rocking around the Christmas tree. Holly, jolly Christmas. I am dreaming of a white Christmas, to name a few. But as much as these songs and the secular world tries to capture the Christmas spirit, the Christmas joy that the season brings, the fact of the matter is the world will never fully know. Let me correct that. The world will never even partially know, never even come close to knowing the spirit and the joy of Christmas As we, the church, the children of God, have been revealed by God to know through the Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen? So let me say it again to you, brothers and sisters, and you can say it to others sitting next to you. Merry Christmas. We're continuing our study through John's Gospel in our passage this afternoon from John chapter 6, verses 4b, second part of verse 4 through 33. Jesus is continuing to exhort his disciples his parting words of comfort and encouragement in how they ought to take heart, take courage in the midst of sorrow, as his hour has now come for him to die on the cross, as he had been warning his disciples and as according to the scriptures. It had been written, as you know, all throughout the scriptures, particularly in the Gospels, multiple times in John's Gospel specifically, The reason why Jesus came to earth as man was in order that he would live the perfect, sinless, obedient life, die the substitute death, rise again on the third day, and that he would ascend back to heaven in the right hand of God, the Father. Jesus is what 2 Corinthians 9.15 describes as God's indescribable gift to us. For those of us who are in Christ, Jesus is indeed the very best Christmas gift that we have ever received. And it's a gift that keeps getting better and better, and it's a gift that keeps on giving. So this afternoon, in light of Christmas Sunday, I have some gifts to share with you from the Word. I want to share with you three gifts Jesus gave to us in coming to earth to die, to rise, to ascend back to God. And since it's Christmas, perhaps a bonus point four. So here's the outline. So you know where we're headed. Three points, and then perhaps a bonus point at the end. The gift of the Holy Spirit from verses 4b through 15. The gift of joy from verses 16 through 28. And the gift of peace from verses 29 through 33. Gift of the Holy Spirit, gift of joy, gift of peace. Through these words, I pray that you will be reminded and encouraged afresh of the true reason for the season, Jesus. And what is coming to earth accomplished for you and me And if you're not a Christian and you are visiting with us today Thank you so much for coming We welcome you I pray that you will come to know the reason why Jesus A man who only lived on earth 33 short years A man whose public ministry only lasted 3 short years A man who never wrote a book A man who never led an army Never ruled a country Who died one of the most gruesome deaths In human history on the cross Has such influence even today with millions of followers for over 2,000 years all around the globe. And why has birth changed the history of the world forever? So without further ado, please follow along with your Bibles open as I read and preach from John chapter 16, verses 4b to 33. And if you are new to the Bible, our passage will be found about two-thirds into the Bible, the New Testament, the big numbers are the chapter numbers, so 16, 16, and the small numbers are the verse numbers, starting with verse 4, second half of verse 4. It says this. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I'm going to him who sent me. And none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I've said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all truth. For He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak. And He will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify Me, for He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is Mine, therefore I said that He will take what is Mine and declare it to you. A little while, and you will see Me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see Me. So some of His disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? Do we not know what he's talking about? Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me. And again, a little while you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your heart will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have set these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. And that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Why should Christians take heart in the midst of sorrow? Point number one, we've been given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Christians should take heart. If you are a Christian here this afternoon, and you are in sorrow, you are experiencing sorrow, May this be a reminder to you You have been given the gift of the Holy Spirit From verses 4b through 15 Look with me to verses 4b to 7 Again it says this I did not say these things to you from the beginning Because I was with you But now I'm going to him who sent me And none of you asks me where are you going But because I have said these things to you Sorrow has filled your heart Nevertheless I tell you the truth It is to your advantage that I go away For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In last week's passage, in John chapter 15, Jesus exhorts his disciples that he is the true vine, the source of all life, that he is the new and greater Israel in whom God the Father would bear much fruit and bring many sons to glory. Jesus repeatedly reminded his disciples to abide in me, remain in me, stay with me. Because he was reminding them, apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. I know it's only been a week, but in the busyness of the Christmas season, in the midst of a new COVID variant and reports of rising cases and the subsequent caution, for students perhaps with finals and the end of the semester exams, for those of you who work with the end of the year deadlines and pressures, in the midst of trials, I want to ask you this afternoon, How have you abided in Jesus this week? How have you abided in Jesus this week? How have you drawn your life, your strength, your joy and peace from him? Or have you perhaps given yourself to experience so much anxiety and distress and frustration because you try to rely on yourself rather than trusting in Christ? Jesus says in John 16, 1 to his disciples and to us today, I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. And he says in verse 4 again, But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Of course, the hour in which Jesus was speaking to his disciples about was the hour when Jesus would be betrayed and led to his death. But the principle still applies to us today. When we face trials, when we face persecution, when we face a crisis of faith, do you remember the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and hold fast to his promises? Do you abide in him? Do you remain in him? We see in verse 6 that sorrow has filled the disciples' hearts as a result of all that Jesus has been telling them from John chapters 13 until now. I'm leaving. I'm departing from this world. I'm going back to the Father. And so sorrow has filled the hearts of the disciples. And according to verse 5, it was because they didn't understand entirely what Jesus meant when he said he was going back to the Father, you see. Well, seeing that the disciples were struggling to understand what was about to happen and why Jesus was speaking of leaving them, Jesus, what does he do? He comforts them with words found in our passage this afternoon. Jesus says in verse 7, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. I know you are experiencing sorrow and fear and anxiety. But let me tell you the truth. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I don't go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Jesus says, I know deep grief has filled your heart. I know difficult times are ahead. I know that you are scared. I know that you are anxious. I know that you are fearful. But that's exactly why I'm going away so the helper can come to you. The word translated helper in the ESV in verse 7 is the Greek word paraclete, which other English translations translate it the comforter or the counselor. So did you know that in Christ, in our Holy Spirit, you have a counselor, the ultimate counselor with you, for you. Amen? And it's referring again to the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, who was to come after Jesus dies and resurrects and ascends back to heaven. And of course, Jesus was speaking about the day of the Pentecost, a day in which we can read about in Acts 2. You see, the cross is just half of the gospel, brothers and sisters, just half of the good news. And here Jesus was cluing in his disciples on more of God's redemptive plan, God's ancient covenant How all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through God's chosen Son. Brothers and sisters, hear Jesus' words rightly. May it be an encouragement to all of us who experience sorrow and grief. Rightly so. Rightly so. There's nothing wrong with you if you experience sorrow and grief in this broken, fallen world. And Jesus says the remedy, the answer to our sorrows, the answer to our griefs, post-Jesus' resurrection and ascension, is God, the Holy Spirit. Amen? The helper, the comforter, the counselor is here for you, for your advantage. For anyone who has ever thought, if only I can physically see Jesus with my own eyes, if only I can physically be with Jesus in the flesh, then I would have absolutely no doubts about Christianity. Then I wouldn't fear. Then I wouldn't have weak faith. I would have strong faith. Jesus says, no, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's better that I go away so the Helper can come to you. Jesus insists it's better to be alive now, today, after the coming of the Spirit, than what those disciples knew of Jesus. Jesus was speaking about the age of the kingdom of God that the Holy Spirit would characterize, foretold in numerous biblical promises. So let me read you a few passages. You can just write these down and look it up later. Please do write it down. Isaiah 32, 14 through 16, it says this, For the palace will be deserted, the busy city abandoned. The hill and the watchtower will become barren places forever. Until the Spirit from on high is poured out on us, then the desert will become an orchard, and the orchard will seem like a forest. Then justice will inhabit the wilderness, and righteousness will dwell in the orchard. Isaiah 44, verses 2 through 3. Isaiah 44, 2 through 3. This is the word of the Lord, your maker, the one who formed you from the womb. He will help you. Do not fear Jacob, my servant, speaking of his people. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your descendants and my blessing on your offspring. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27 says this. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. And Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. Joel two twenty-eight 28 through 32 says, After this, I will pour out my spirit on all humanity. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your old men will have dreams, and your young men will see visions. I will even pour out my spirit on the male and female slaves in those days. I will display wonders in the heavens and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon to blood, before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For there will be an escape for those on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, as the Lord promised among the survivors the Lord calls. The reality of it was... This saving reign of God cannot be fully inaugurated until Jesus had died and rose again from the dead and exalted to the Father's hand. Don Carson, in his commentary, says before the triumphant inbreaking of God's saving reign, before the inauguration of this new covenant, millions, millions ignore the claims of the true God. But Pentecost, the coming of the Holy Spirit, transformed that limitation, and millions have been brought to happy submission to the Lord Jesus Christ and to growing obedience by the power of the Spirit whom he bequeathed. Close quote. So brothers and sisters, in your sorrows, in your anxieties, again, let me ask you, how do you rely on the comforter sent for you? How much do you depend on the helper who is advantageous to you? Do you cling to the promise? Do you cling to the presence of the Holy Spirit that is with you today, right now, this moment? Well, some of you may be wondering, why did Jesus have to leave for the Holy Spirit to come? Why couldn't two members of the Trinity just come together? Well, simply because the work of the Holy Spirit was to interpret and explain and illumine the work that Jesus has done through His death, resurrection, and ascension. See, so apart from the Holy Spirit, we would have never understood what in the world Jesus was doing on earth. Even as they, the disciples saw even as they were told that they could not understand. It was only by the Holy Spirit's illumination that they or anyone could understand the significance of Jesus' finished work on the cross. And the following verse, verses explains how the Holy Spirit will do so in two primary ways. Subpoint so number one, the Holy Spirit convicts guilt from verses 8 through 11, and the Holy Spirit confirms truth from verses 12 to 15. Look with me to verses 8 through 15 one more time. It says this, And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now, I'll just tell you that verses 8 through 11 are the subject of much debate among biblical scholars. So if you read those verses, what exactly does it mean that the Spirit will convict the world? Convict the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. Well, simply, that because of God's full disclosure of his redemptive plan through Jesus in his death, resurrection, and ascension, the world is no longer free from ignorance of their sin. The Holy Spirit's very work was to bring about the conviction of sin, what is right and wrong, what is of God and what is not. So now, anyone who claims unbelief, I don't know, I don't care about Jesus, that person is guilty of sin. At the end of days, when every man and woman stands before Jesus, the righteous judge, the Bible is clear. All will be without excuse. Every single person in this room and in this world has been made known of their guilt before God. That's what these scriptures are saying by the Holy Spirit. That's what verse 9 means. The Holy Spirit will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in me. Ignorance is no longer an excuse. God has made known Jesus in the world. And if you had not known up to this point, to this day, I had not known that Jesus is the Savior of the world, welcome. I've just made it known to you, Jesus is the Savior of the world. Apart from him, there is no salvation. The Holy Spirit has made known to the world concerning his righteousness because Jesus has gone to the Father and we will see him no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. How is it that we know? that Jesus rose again from the grave and is reigning as the sovereign king of the universe? How do we know that Satan is judged and that Jesus is the righteous judge of all who would deny all who would reject him? Because the Holy Spirit has made it known to us. The Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Not only that, verses 13 through 15 tells us the Holy Spirit confirms or guides us into all truth. How does this happen? The Holy Spirit doesn't speak audible words to us. If anybody says, hey, I heard something new, fresh from God, be very suspect of that. Okay? The Holy Spirit doesn't give us fresh revelations of God. All that we know about God, about life and godliness, has been revealed through the Holy Scriptures. Amen? Everything God wants us to know about Himself and about life in Him, it is written in this very book. And again... It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us understand God's truth for our endless comfort. It is the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us understand God's truth for our constant comfort. For example, for anyone who has doubted this fact, specifically for anyone who doubts that the Trinity is never mentioned in the Bible, did you notice in verse 15, the mention of all three, God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, all that the Father has is mine, Jesus the Son. Therefore, I said that he, the Holy Spirit, will take what is mine, Jesus again, and declare it to you. There it is right there, the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. So dear brothers and sisters in Christ, are any of you experiencing sorrow? Are any of you experiencing anxiety? Are any of you overwhelmed by the troubles of this world? God the Holy Spirit is with us. It ultimately comes down to, do you cling to this hope? Do you cling to this promise? Do you cling to the Counselor, the Comforter, who has been sent for us, our guide to help us understand God's truth, that in Christ that we have been forgiven, that in Christ we have been made righteous, that in Christ the ruler of this world, the principles and the powers of this world are mere puppets, that the Holy Spirit helps us as our very present help in time of need. Amen? Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. He is our very present help. In time of need. What a gift. What a gift the Spirit is to us. Amen? Amen. And what confidence can we have when we disciple fellow brothers and sisters in Christ and when we share the good news of Jesus with others that the Spirit of God is with us, that He goes before us and after us to reveal Christ, to clarify Christ, to glorify Christ on our behalf only if we would in faith, in, in truth, in love, in hope, in Christ alone speak and walk. And live and love Dear brothers and sisters in Christ This Christmas we have a reason To celebrate the true spirit of Christmas Because the Holy Spirit has been gifted to us Amen? Point number two Why should we take heart in the midst of sorrow? Point number two In Christ we have been given the gift of joy We have been given the gift of joy Verses 16 through 22 Look with me to those verses again It says this A little while and you will see me no longer And again a little while and you will see me so some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while you will see me and because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now. But I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take that joy from you. So what we find in these verses are some interesting back-and-forth dialogue, isn't it? It's even hard to read it. Jesus is telling them that something will happen, but the disciples are entirely confused. So they are discussing it among themselves, uh, but they are hesitant to ask Jesus what he is talking about, but Jesus knows that they are confused. So he, he explains to them in verse 20, doesn't he? So what, what I think author John is intending for us to get, which is the reason why that interesting phrase keeps repeating in this passage. So interesting how it's repeated like that several times, isn't it? And I think it's to explain to us again the purpose of why Jesus came. The author is trying to get it into our heads. The purpose, the reason why Jesus came. What Jesus means by, verse 16, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, you will see me. For the disciples, most immediately, Jesus was speaking about his death, wasn't he? Literally, in a little while, in just a few hours, Jesus would be put on the cross. He would be buried, so you will see me no longer. And again, in a little while, three days later, you will see me when I rise again. Again, are you getting it clearly? The purpose of Jesus' coming was his death and resurrection and ascension. In verse 20, Jesus explains to his disciples why his death And resurrection is a gift to us He says Truly, truly I say to you You will weep and lament But the world will rejoice You will be sorrowful But your sorrow will turn into joy Much like how this secular world Ironically rejoices in ignorance And to their judgment During a secular Christless Christmas The world rejoiced When they put Jesus to death on the cross The Pharisees thought They put the blasphemous heretic to death Satan thought that he defeated God Even Jesus' own disciples were full of sorrow because Jesus was dead and done. That's what they thought. But Jesus says, your sorrow will turn into joy. And the disciples' sorrow certainly did turn into joy when Jesus rose again from the grave, didn't he? Jesus illustrates this idea in verses 21 through 22. With when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come because of pain she will experience, because of the anxiety and fear she will experience in the birthing process. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being was born into the world. See, Jesus was teaching his disciples that in Jesus, sorrow now, but glory later. Again, for the Christian, sorrow now, but glory later. Jesus was also alluding to his disciples the future eschatological joy they will experience. On the day of his return, when Jesus will return to earth in his second coming, Jesus will return to us at the end of days. That's why the grammar says in verse 22, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. And in verse 23, in that day, You will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Now, I have to admit, these verses are very, very challenging. Okay? Is Jesus speaking of the age between Jesus' first and second coming? the, The age now? Or is Jesus talking about the day of our consummation when all of God's people will be reunited with Christ in heaven? Either way, Christians can believe. In this age of the inaugurated eschatology, which means the period in which Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension inaugurated the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God's reign, Christ's reign, which will be fully realized when Jesus returns. In other words, when Jesus ascended into heaven to sit on the right hand of God, to reign as the sovereign king over the universe presently, But at the end of days when Jesus returns in his second coming, when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is the Lord, when all men will be judged by him according to their deeds, when all whom God intended to be saved are saved and resurrected to heaven, Jesus will reign finally forever as the King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. And what I think these verses are relating to, on that day, Jesus says, ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. It was another way Jesus was fulfilling Old Testament scriptures, specifically here the words of Isaiah 66, verse 14. You shall see, and you shall rejoice. Your bones shall flourish like the grass, and the hand of the Lord shall be known to his servants, and he shall show his indignation against his enemies. Now, if that's a bit confusing to you, that's okay. Jesus himself says in verse 25, I have said these things to you in figures of speech. If you're confused, so were the disciples at the time. Well, here are some more certain implications. Look with me to verses 26 through 28. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me, and have believed that I came from God. And I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. So again, because of Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, verse 28, disciples of Jesus can rejoice even in the midst of sorrow, verse 24, You can ask God the Father whatever you want and He will give it to you, verse 23, because He loves you and you have direct access to Him in Jesus' name, verse 26, and because you yourself love Jesus and believe in Him, verse 27, and because you know the way to the fullness of joy. Amen? Those are some practical, certain implications you can be really certain of. Brothers and sisters, what gift we've been given in Christ that we get to experience God's joy as we take our cares to the Father in prayer. What I mean by that is, are you sorrowful? Pray. Are you worried? Pray. Are you anxious? Pray. Are you lonely? Pray. Are you lacking something? Pray. Are you depressed? Pray. Jesus is teaching us prayer is the pathway to joy. Jesus is teaching us prayer is a pathway to joy, so do you pray? I love how J.C. Ryle explains this privilege we have as Jesus' disciples. He says, and I quote, From henceforth, begin the practice of asking everything in my name and through my mediation. Ask fully and confidently, and you shall receive fully and abundantly. So asking, you shall find joy and comfort for your own souls, enlarged and filled up. The benefit of prayer is so great that it cannot be expressed. Prayer is the dove, which when sent out returns again, bringing with it the olive leaf, namely a piece of heart. Prayer is the golden chain which God holds fast and lets not go until he blesses. Prayer is Moses' rod, which brings forth water of consolation out of the rock of salvation. Prayer is Samson's jawbone, which smites down our enemies. Prayer is David's harp before which evil spirit flees. Prayer is the key to heaven's treasures. It teaches us that the joy of a believer depends much on his fervency and earnestness in prayer. He that prays little and coldly must not expect to know much of the joy and peace in believing. Close quote. I want you to think about this carefully, brothers and sisters. All around the world today, Millions of people prayed to their dead and false gods religiously and ritualistically, with no certainty whatsoever. They believe their prayers will win them some sort of favor with their gods. They hope, with no certain guarantee, that their gods would answer, much less hear their prayers, yet they do it anyways, right? daily? Well let me remind you, brothers and sisters, as the children of God, we have a God who hears our prayers, according to John 9:31. We have a God who answers our prayers according to John 15, 7. And we have a God who literally says to us, whatever you ask, I will give it to you. John chapter 16, verse 23. Amen? Point number three, why should Christians take heart in the midst of sorrow? Point number three, in Christ we are given the gift of peace. Verses 29 through 33. Look with me to those verses. It says this again. His disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming indeed, and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. And I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I must admit, again, these verses are really hard to interpret. Verses twenty-nine through thirty. Why the disciples respond this way? What about what Jesus said in the previous verse that caused the eleven disciples to have this light bulb moment? I don't know. Nobody knows. Why the disciples, who are experiencing deep sorrow moments ago, says such words of overconfidence? Even the commentators disagree. Of course, they are responding to what Jesus said in verse twenty-five. When he said, the hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. So again, whether the disciples truly understood what Jesus said about the Father is doubtful. It's a suspect. In fact, Jesus' response to their overconfidence in verse 31, do you now believe, proves that. And Jesus' foresight in verse 32 proves they did not quite get it yet. Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. An hour is coming, a few hours from now, you will all scatter and then desert me, leave me all alone. And so I think what these verses are showing us is literally how feeble and capricious the disciples' faith were. Doesn't it highlight just that? They said to Jesus, ah, now we know that you know all things. Now we get it. We don't question you anymore because we believe in you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Yet again, just hours later, they all scatter. Peter himself, who confessed, I will never deny you, denies Jesus. Not once, not twice, but three times. Matthew 27, 74 even says Peter cursed and swore at somebody because they were accusing him. Aren't you one of the disciples? Beep, beep, beep. Get away from me. I'm not one of those. Matthew 27, 74. The truth of the matter is, if our faith was up to us, we would not even last A millisecond. We would not, could not, dare not persevere in trusting Christ as our Lord and Savior of our souls. That's why on this Christmas and every Christmas, for those of us who are in Christ, the words of verse 33 is ever so precious. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Stop sorrowing. Stop being anxious. Stop being insecure. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Your faith is not dependent on you. It's dependent on me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Brothers and sisters, this is the good news of Jesus Christ. It's the good news of Christmas, that God who is righteous, who is unlike any other God, created the world in love. He created you because he loves you for his glory and for our joy. Yet man, having been tempted by Satan, and continuing to be tempted by Satan, chose to distrust God and disobey God's word, mistakenly thinking that we can be gods unto ourselves. And since sin entered the world in Genesis chapter 3, man continually chose sin rather than trusting God. We were incapable of knowing the way, the truth, and the life because of our total and complete entire depravity to the things of God. As a result, we were separated from God, weren't we? on a consequential eventual path toward death, judgment, and eternal punishment. For a holy God cannot be at one with sinful man, for a just God must punish sin. But God had a plan from the very beginning to save a people from their sins and atone or make right their broken relationship with God. How did he do that? By offering a sacrifice to make peace between God and man. And that plan was to send Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to this world to humble himself, to give up his glory for a time being in order to take upon flesh as truly God and truly man so that Jesus may live the life that we could not live, a life of perfect obedience to the God the Father, a sinless life, and for him to die the death that we should have died on the cross as a substitute in our place for our sins, to take upon himself the wrath, the judgment, the punishment of God that we deserved. Our unrighteousness, our uncleanness, all of our sins, sins of the past, present, and future were placed on him. And Jesus, on the cross, fully satisfied God's rightful, just wrath on sin. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. He died, he was buried, the world rejoiced, thinking they won. But on the third day, Jesus rose again from death, defeating sin, Satan, and death forever, which is why we are celebrating him today. He ascended into heaven back to the Father as he said he would back to glory. And today, even today, he invites all who would repent, believe, and trust in him to experience new life and eternal life with him now and forever. This is what Jesus means. I have said these things to you, that in me, that in me, not in you, Not in anything else. In me, you may have peace. Jesus came to earth to make peace for us with God. That's why the angels and a multitude of heavenly hosts praise God on that cold December night of Jesus' birth. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian, thank you so much for coming today. Perhaps for whatever reason, you thought this was a good Sunday for you to come to church, and it certainly is. Every Sunday is a great Sunday to celebrate Jesus' coming to earth for our lives, for our souls. And so let me ask you a question while you are here. I may never get a chance again. I hope that you come again. But let me ask you these questions. Have you ever wondered why the joys of this world is so fleeting and so temporary? Why peace on earth seems like a fairy tale? Perhaps you have never met, personally, the only one in this universe who can offer true joy and true peace. His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, and he's inviting you today. There is no other joy. There is no other peace like his. And we've been preaching the same gospel, the same news of the good news of his coming for 2,000 years, and millions of people around the world have heard and have been transformed. So, brother or sister, friend, if you are here and you're not a Christian, repent of your sins today. That means simply to turn from the things of this world that truly doesn't satisfy and believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again for you, and trust Him with your whole life, not a part of your life, but with your whole life today, tomorrow, and forevermore. If you want to learn more about how to follow Jesus, I would love to talk to you at the close of service. I'll be standing right there at the close of service. John, our service leader, will be standing right there. Or talk to anyone smiling next to you. We are here for this reason, to talk to anyone who is interested more in how they could follow Jesus. And dear brothers and sisters in Christ, what gift for us to know true peace on earth. That no matter what comes your way, our souls are secure. Amen? No matter what comes our way, our souls are secure. That the God of the universe loves us. That in our sorrows we can find comfort in prayer, in trusting in our sovereign Savior, that we know the true spirit and joy of Christmas. When the world celebrates it with false hope and false joys, we have true hope and true joy and true peace. And here's a bonus point for you. Don't be shocked. It's very short. Gift number four. Why should we take heart even in sorrow? Because in Christ we have the final victory. That's what he means when he says, In the world you will have tribulation. And so many people of this world who do not know Jesus, who do not have Christ, will fall to their demise in their tribulations, in the tribulations of this world. Depression will grip them, death will cause them to go to hell and face judgment. But in Christ, take heart. Take courage, for I have overcome the world. In Christ, you can't lose. In Christ, you have already won. May we receive Jesus' gifts of the Holy Spirit, of true joy and of peace and final victory by declaring with our lives and the way we love one another, joy to the world, the Lord has come. Let us do that until our final breath. Or until Jesus returns. Let's pray.